We normally think about plants being healthy and lush and vibrant in all the warm and wet places of the world. We always kind of examine them that way, but there's a different kind of vibrancy that's often unseen and actually sometimes more robust, more impressive, buried under the ground. And that would be the root system of these. But ironically, the most impressive root systems are those which exist in the most barren and arid places of the world. These are the places where roots obviously have to go deep, very deep, if they're going to find any kind of nourishment at all. So it is the tendency of plants that in these barren lands, the more barren it is, the deeper the roots go. One of the deepest roots ever found, as a matter of fact, was found in the deserts of Arizona, nearly 60 meters under the ground, all the way down, down, in order to find nourishment. Well, today, we want to talk about roots, roots of right thinking. We want to talk about how to go down deep, very deep to the place of nourishment, wherever we need to in life. We want to talk about growing in the right kind of thinking in the midst of a world that is, we might say, arid and barren in its own thinking, in its own understanding, in its own insights. And so if we're going to think rightly, we're going to have to develop the kind of roots that go far, far deeper than just the surface. This is sort of the picture that Paul has been painting for us in the book of 1 Corinthians as he speaks about all of the understanding and all the wisdom of this life and of this world. He's been speaking about it in terms of its emptiness, in terms of its barrenness, in terms of its futility and its fruitlessness. He's been painting the picture of a a world system and a way of thinking which altogether has been rejected by God and has failed altogether to produce the kind of results which it, it itself is seeking. A futile and barren way of thinking about life, a futile and barren worldview, we might say. And a worldview, unfortunately, that was encroaching onto this church at Corinth and deeply dividing it because of that. Remember in chapter 1, in verse 10, Paul had given them a call that they all agree and that they be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And what he goes on to spell out is that to be of the same mind is to have the mind of Christ, as he says in chapter 2, verse 16. That is what Paul had himself committed to. That was his message wherever he went. When he was among them, he decided to know nothing but Jesus Christ. He decided to have nothing but the mind of Christ. He decided to know nothing but the wisdom of God. He decided to preach nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now this morning we come to chapter 3 and the end of chapter 3. And Paul drives on this point in the most forceful of ways Yet, this is what he says in verse 18 through the end of the chapter in chapter 3. Let no one deceive himself. 
If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Paul is basically constructing for them and for us a whole worldview, a whole way to think about everything we encounter and all this around us about our leaders, about uh, the world we live in, the world we move in, the things that we do. And the truths here are profound, they are far reaching, and they will absolutely change your life if you grab hold of them. Now, there are two basic pieces of a worldview that Paul is building for us in this passage. First of all, he wants us to understand, he says, the the exclusive place of God's truth. The exclusive place of God's truth. There's a proper framework, he's saying, in order for us to understand everything, a fundamental starting point, and that starting point must be God, and it must be His truth. That's Paul's point here. And so what he does is to, first of all, spell out the danger of evaluating yourself or anything else in worldly terms. Let no one deceive himself, he says in verse 18. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool. It speaks about those who are wise in this age. That word that's already been used, you remember back in chapter 2, verse 6, to designate a kind of wisdom which Paul himself would never engage in. He would never preach. He would never make a part of his message, much, much, much less his life. Because he says back in chapter 2, verse 6, the wisdom of this age is doomed, doomed to pass away. Paul says it throughout his books, Galatians chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 4. Paul calls it uh, the, the present evil age that we live in. He speaks about a an age that is dominated by rulers and authorities and powers and dominions, all set themselves, setting themselves up under the prince of the power of the air against God in Ephesians. All of this is in contrast to a coming age when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But what he has painted for us so far is that that's not true. In this present evil age, in this present age, that's not true. There are all kinds of forces, all kinds of systems, all kinds of ways of thought that are far from acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord or bowing before Him at all. It's a system that operates as if there is no God, which the psalmist says is by definition foolishness. Right? Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart there is no God. So the whole system which operates as if there's no God is by definition a foolish system. This is the age, as Proverbs 129 says, that hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord because in Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So to the extent that the unbeliever rejects the wisdom of God, to that extent he or she becomes foolish. They become, as Paul says, futile in their thinking. And their foolish heart is darkened, Romans one twenty one tells us. That's what it means in Proverbs when it says they hate knowledge. They may have a fascination with learning. They may accumulate for themselves all kinds of degrees and all kinds of study and reports. They may be fascinated with the knowledge of this world. They may be highly recognized as an expert in some field, but the Bible declares them a fool, a hater of knowledge and futile in their thinking. This is what we read, remember back in chapter 1, verse 18, when Paul has already told us over and over again that God destroys the wisdom of the wise. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Since the world and its wisdom did not come to know God, it pleased God that through the folly of what was preached to save those who would believe, because God's condemned the wisdom of this world. This age is made up of a system that is dominated by the God of this world and blinds the minds of unbelievers. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me at 2 Corinthians 10 for just a moment. 2 Corinthians 10 and in verse 3. Paul says that every day, as you go out in the world, you are engaging in a constant battle. A battle which he says, in verse 5, particular, 2 Corinthians 5, a battle to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, the last thing you want to do is to take a system which is constructed on a position of rebellion against God and and exalting itself against the knowledge of God and disobedient to Christ, to take a system that hasn't been brought into captivity to Christ, the last thing you want to do is to take that kind of system and to use it as a measuring stick for your wisdom. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 3. To use that... And to use whatever kind of accolades, whatever kind of recognition, whatever kind of esteem would come from that kind of system as a way of evaluating yourself is itself foolish. So Paul says back in 1 Corinthians 3, don't deceive yourself. That is the danger that every one of you face. That's the danger. Is to think that somehow, because someone somewhere in the world has called you wise or esteemed you or set you apart or rewarded you or paid you or whatever called you an expert, that somehow that equates to wisdom. It doesn't. In fact, after Paul sort of gives a a danger there, he gives a demand, a demand for every one of us. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. There is, in other words, an absolute incompatibility with the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. That's what he's saying. Choose your path. There's an incompatibility with the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. 
He's not saying, look, what you need to do is sort of fill up the tank halfway with as much wisdom as you can get out of this world and then fill up the tank halfway with whatever kind of wisdom you can get out of God and then you'll have the complete picture. It's not as though God's wisdom exists out there as one piece of the puzzle and then you're to go out there and you're to learn from all these other resources, whatever you can, to sort of make up what is inadequate in God's wisdom. That's the wrong way of thinking about all this. Paul says the true pathway to wisdom is the renunciation of the wisdom of this world. In fact, he quotes two passages. He says in verse 19, the wisdom of this world is folly with God. And then he quotes two passages to corroborate his point. He says it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Now that's a quote from Job 5. It's, It's... In fact, it's the only quote from Job in the entire New Testament. It's not even actually from the lips of Job. It's from the lips of Eliphaz, who was one of the guys that got rebuked at the end of the book of Job. But Paul seemingly finds one nugget of truth in what he says. God catches the wise in their craftiness. Eliphaz is setting a a contrast In fact, let me flip over there and read that to you in Job chapter 5, verse 12. Eliphaz says, He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. The schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. uh, They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he says, excuse me, but he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty so the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. So Eliphaz is is setting this contrast between the crafty, the so-called wise, the wily, and those who are poor and those who mourn and those who are needy. This is sort of what he's building and this is what Paul is borrowing from here he's bringing out this contrast and he does it interestingly by even changing some of the words from the popular greek translation of his own day the septuagint he even changes a couple words to bring out this even more to to use a word that for the word for craftiness here that emphasizes the multiplicity of all the schemes of all the pathways that men or women may try in this life Just moving from one failed attempt, from one false hope, from one more scheme to the next, moving along from one ploy or one plot of greediness or taking advantage of other people to the next ploy, the next plot, just just bobbing and weaving and zigzagging all through life, trying out all of these things, thinking that somehow they're going to get around God's eternal purposes. Paul says God catches them. He catches them. You're not going to outmaneuver him. You're not going to finally outsmart him. You're not going to be the one who finally, after all of these centuries and all these millennia, finally proves God wrong. You'll just be one more in a long line of people who prove themselves foolish. Paul also quotes from Psalm 94. And again, he says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. 
Some translations in the Old Testament render the Hebrew there, they're puffed up. They're just a breath, as the ESV says. Psalm 94, in fact, I'll read that for you. Psalm 94, verse 6. This is the context out of which Paul quotes. He says there, they kill the widow and the sojourner. They murder the fatherless. They say the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath, it says. So the psalmist is once again highlighting all the schemes of the wicked, but really what he says applies to anyone who determines or calculates his steps or who goes through life thinking that somehow God doesn't see, God doesn't know, God doesn't exist. All their calculations in life are all based on that. They sort of either renounce God altogether or they sort of put God into a category over here on the side, some religious category that you deal with on Sundays or on Wednesdays or whatever it might be, you have your religious life and you've got all your other life and you have to live your life over here as if God's not a picture. God's not in the picture. The psalmist says, and Paul quotes, you'll find all your schemes in the end are futility. So what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians is the last thing you want to do is to begin to assume that people who think like that would ever properly evaluate your wisdom. To begin assuming that the evaluational world that is so in rebellion against God and the ways of God can be a reliable test of your wisdom. As we said, it may offer you accolades and rewards. It may heap on you honors and praise and compliments. But don't confuse that. Don't be deceived, Paul says. Don't confuse that with a real affirmation of wisdom. It's just one more pathway to folly. So Paul says, you want to be wise? You want to be wise? Renounce all that. Renounce the wisdom of the world. You have to calculate God into every fact of life. You have to calculate God into every step you take. And that, of course, will make you a fool to all the people around you. But Paul says this is a pathway to wisdom. What, what Paul is talking about is a wisdom... What he's, I'm sorry, attacking here, what he's sort of rebuking here is a so-called wisdom that exists or thinks that it exists independent of God. There's a whole world out there that thinks about facts, that thinks about what's around them, that thinks about history, that thinks about events independent of God. 
A kind of thinking that takes as its starting point the material universe around them. It views the things that we see and that we touch and that we can test and we can observe as the ultimate facts of the universe. This is the way they look at life. The ultimate is what you see. The ultimate is what you touch. The ultimate is what you put into a laboratory and test. That's the starting point of their thinking. And even if they think about a God, they think about it from the starting point of those material facts around them. Men and women see themselves as sort of independent observers of data, interpreting that data, making independent judgments about what is true and what is false. And for them, what happens is that God becomes simply one more of those data points. People sort of examine and interpret what they believe about God based on all this other stuff because God's not ultimate, the the stuff is. The stuff they see, the stuff that they taste, the stuff that they test. That's what's ultimate for them. Well, what Paul's saying to us is that the facts and the data that you observe around you are not the ultimate. God is. He is truth. He created the world. And He created every single data point in it. God doesn't observe creation and interpret the world that is made. He ordained the way it's made. He ordained creation, He ordained history, He ordained all that you see and all that you know. He is the truth and He makes the truth that you and I come to know. In other words, the world and history and the facts that we see are constructed by God, not interpreted by God. And so our job isn't to interpret what we see around us. Our job is to reconstruct in our minds what God constructed. Or as theologians sometimes say, we're to think God's thoughts after Him. Think God's thoughts after Him. This is the demand that God's wisdom has on each one of us. This is the pathway of true wisdom, that we no longer look at our mind as ultimate. We no longer consider our judgments about the world and life as independent, but we take our place in dependency on God and on His thoughts. You see, God knows everything, right? God knows everything. Everything that is, everything that was, everything that will be. And you and I are seeking to make a replica in our minds of what God knows. That's the point. We want to see every fact, every data point, every event the way that God sees it. We are, in other words, to think the same things God does about everything. Now, don't confuse me. Don't confuse what I'm saying. Isaiah 55 tells us that God's ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. I'm not saying that we will ever know qualitatively the same way that God knows. In fact, it's, it's a little bit like if you've ever been in, in, in class and you sit down and you sit under some great professor that you know and 
you're just awed by whatever, everything this guy knows. And so you sort of sit under his teaching and you begin to read the books that he read and you begin to study the things that he studied. And before long, what happens is you begin to cl- sort of close that gap. Some of the mystery sort of goes away. Some of the awe might even sort of go away because you're, you're sort of acquiring and sort of catching up to where this guy is that just knew everything you thought. It's totally different with God, though. You start thinking God's thoughts after Him. You start thinking the way that God thinks. You don't actually close the gap. What you realize is the gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You start realizing everything more and more deeply what God knows. So we're not saying that you'll ever become a God. We're not saying that you'll ever think the same way, the same qualitative way that God thinks. What Paul's calling for us to do, though, is to think God's thoughts about everything, about everything. Learn about His ways. Interpret every fact around us according to Him. This is what Paul meant back in chapter 2, verse 16, when he says, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Now, don't mistake all this to suggest that now you are supposed to renounce whatever you're doing and go out and take your place in the convent or the monastery and become a monk or a nun because all your thoughts are now supposed to be formal study of theology. Don't think that that's the only legitimate answer to all this. Paul's not saying that all knowledge that is not strictly theological knowledge is useless knowledge. When he talks about renouncing the wisdom of this world, he isn't giving us an outright condemnation on things like engineering and science and mathematics and medicine and mechanics, management, sales and service positions that you might have. This isn't a renunciation of all those what we sometimes think of as secular or worldly things. It's just a matter of keeping all those things in their place. And this is where Paul goes on to construct their worldview with the second major piece here. Not only the exclusive place of God's truth, but the inclusive purpose of all things. The inclusive purpose of all things. He says in verse 21, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Remember, this is sort of the context of what he's been saying to them. It was out of this tendency that they have had in order to look at men as the source of their truth. And what he's telling them is that no man could ever be that. They are, as Paul stated back in verse 5, just servants that the Lord has appointed. He'll say the very same thing in the next few verses in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. This is the way you need to think about your teachers. They are servants. This is the way you need to think about their role. Now remember, this is the exact opposite that they were apparently saying back in chapter 3, verse 4. They were saying, I follow Paul. Or literally it says, I am of Paul. Or I am of Apollos. They said the same thing back in chapter 1. He says in... 112, each one of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am Cephas. 
He goes on to further define that in verse 13 of chapter 1. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? They were speaking of their leaders, in other words, as if they had been baptized in their name. They were speaking of their leaders as if they belonged to that leader. As if their purpose was to serve that leader. And Paul says, that's not the way you need to think about it. It's not that you are theirs. You are of Paul, you are of Apollos, you are of anybody. He says, they're yours. They are yours. In the sense that they are gifts. Don't look at them in the wrong way. The church is not the property of its leaders. It's not even the product of its leaders. Remember, we've already established this. The church is God's field, God's building. One waters, one plants. But who brings the increase? It's God, right? The leaders are the property or the servants, the slaves. As Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, the slaves of the church. This, Paul says in verse 21 of chapter 3, would put an end to boasting in men. He'll repeat it down in chapter 4 in verse 6. He'll say, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees you as anything different or who sees anything different in you, he says? Or what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Paul makes it pretty clear that they were using these allegiances, these associations with their leaders to draw distinctions between themselves. And so the point he's been making over and over again is, first of all, in terms of unity, Christ is not divided. The same God who gave a leader to one group gave a leader to another. One plants, one waters, they're all one, he said in chapter 3. Secondly, in terms of loyalty, you don't belong to a leader. You weren't baptized in their name. You belong to Christ. Even your leaders are given to Him. Thirdly, in terms of agency, or we might say efficacy, whatever happens in your life happens because God appointed it, not because of some leader. They plant, they water, but it's God who does whatever He does. God has given them to you. You have received them from God. They are gifts from Him, and whatever comes through them comes from God. Whatever you have, you have received. So where's the boasting? That's His point in chapter 4. Where's the boasting? Now, Paul doesn't stop with just these leaders. Notice in verse 22, he goes on. Whether Paulus or Paul, Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, he says. It's not just that the leaders have been given to you. Listen to this. All things have been given to you. God has put at the service of believers all things. 
That's profound. That is, that is earth moving. God has put in the service of his children all things, all creation. He has employed to your benefit and your blessing. God created all things ultimately for his glory. That is the end that Paul eventually goes to, the end of verse 23. But as a means of his glory, he has employed all things in the purpose of blessing and building up his children. To say it another way, God has sanctified all of creation. God has sanctified and set apart everything that is made, everything that happens for your blessing. Now, what Paul says here may cause some of you to think of a very similar list in Romans chapter 8. In fact, Paul uses many of the same words in Romans chapter 8. It's remarkably similar in language. Look with me for just a moment over there. Romans 8, Paul begins uh, sort of this section with a similar statement in verse 32 of Romans 8. He says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. And he immediately begins to talk about things. Things which might be perceived as a threat. Things which might be perceived as accusing or condemning or separating us from God. He begins to talk about all those things that people might encounter or might see possibly in life and might actually think that they're not given by God. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. But ultimately down in verse 37, we see Paul building the same sort of list that he has in 1 Corinthians 3. Now, in all these things are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There you see the same things listed. Life, death, things present, things to come. In 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions the world. In Romans, he talks about angels and powers and rulers. But the point is the same. These things don't rule over you. And you're not here to serve them. God rules over you, and He rules over them. And He's given them all for you. As a matter of fact, Paul had stated it explicitly in Romans 8.28 in another statement about all things. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, God I'll say it again, has sanctified all things. He has set them apart for our good and for our blessing. The world, in other words, is no longer a threat to you. 
the world and all that it does and all of its activities and all that it engages in, it is not a threat to you. It is an instrument that God has given you. He has delivered it over for you, for your blessing, for your benefit, for your good, and for you to employ unto His praise. Now, this is Paul's point back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's all yours. The world, life, death, things present, things future. And this is especially amazing when you just think about each one of the things he says here individually. The entire world, all of life, he says. Especially in light of everything he said about the wisdom of the world. And you might begin to think that there are some professions and some studies and some things that you could engage in that would somehow be, you know, unredeemable. Paul says, absolutely not. Medicine, engineering, management, sales. We should not take what Paul has said to mean that the world, the study of the world, the work in this world are somehow dirty, unsanctified endeavors. God has made this world holy unto you. God has made its activity holy for you. God has set it apart and made it yours. That's what Paul's saying. Every chemist, every financier, every farmer, every teacher, every doctor, every housewife, every sales rep, they're all employed in holy work. Because it's work that God's created. It's work that God has ordained. He has given it for you. It's a blessing and a benefit for you. That is, if you approach it according to God's wisdom. If you're thinking about it the right way. If you have renounced the wisdom of the world and put on the wisdom of God. That takes us back to one of the significant statements that Paul's already said about all things. Back in chapter 2, verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things rightly. The person who has the mind of Christ, the person who's thinking God's thoughts after him, the person who's reconstructing in his mind what God understands about all of life and all of creation, every little detail, every molecule, every atom on earth, every event, he wants to think about it the way that God thinks about it. Every interaction with your spouse, every interaction with your children, every event that comes along your way on the freeway, everything that happens to you at work or at home, every one of them, God has given for the benefit of you. And you want to think about it the way God thinks about it. When you do that, you properly judge all things. That's what Paul says. When you do that, all things suddenly, suddenly become His. They're no longer threats. They're gifts. What a wonderful world, right? Driving down the highway, something happens, that's a gift from God. <laughs> this is sort of similar to what some, something Paul says over in 1 Timothy chapter 4 to a bunch of people who are trying to forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods. 
Paul says, all things were created by God to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. It's all been sanctified. It's all been set apart. It's all meant to bring blessing into your life. Even death, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, even death, not just the world, not just life, but it is something that is to be embraced as a blessing, the passing away of this fallen body so that you and I can inherit our glorified bodies. Things that are present, things that are future, all the events in history and time, all of them have been declared yours. And they're all gifts from God. He created this world. He created all that's in it. He doesn't interpret it. He made it. And you and I aren't to interpret it. We're to think about it the way God thinks about it. Now, unfortunately... It's not a blessing for too many people because they're not judging it rightly. They're not thinking God's thoughts. They're not following God's wisdom. They're not thinking about events, circumstances, life, creation, the way that God thinks about them. They're not thinking about every detail, every material thing in life, the way that God thinks about every detail and every material thing in life. They're not thinking God's thoughts after Him. They're thinking in rebellious terms, presumptuous terms, independent terms, worldly terms. They're becoming foolish in their thinking, futile in their thoughts, ensnared by the thinking of this foolish world. That's why Paul goes on to drive home the point, the remainder of this passage, all things are yours, but first and foremost, they're Christ's and they're God's. This is sort of the balancing factor in all of these things, lest somehow you take what he said and put it through the grid of worldliness and begin to assume that because everything's yours, that somehow life is about everything you see. And it's not. Just because everything is yours and all the events of life doesn't mean that you're living for this world and for this life. Because all of it, he says at the end of verse 23, are Christ and Christ is God's. This is a reminder that while all of creation has been given to us, we need to always remember it has been received as a gift. People sometimes struggle to know how to give big gifts, don't they? I wouldn't know much about this, but I understand that wealthy people put money in trusts because they, have, they kind of perceive that maybe someone is not going to know how to receive it. Maybe they're going to be too immature. Maybe they're not going to understand that it is a gift. Maybe they won't appreciate. They'll squander it. They'll use it for foolish purposes. And so they, they sort of put it in trust sometimes because they, they fear the way that someone might receive it. Paul says we need to understand that what we have, we've received. It's been graciously given to us by God, and ultimately it's His. 
Now this was a, it seems as if this was something that Paul had taught them in the past. Because like no other book in the New Testament, this theme comes up again and again and again and again in 1 Corinthians. They apparently had misunderstood either something that Paul had taught them by mouth or something Paul had written them by a letter. And so over and over again, Paul will touch on this subject, always resisting the temptation to regulate their immaturity with a list of taboos, a list of prohibitions, a list of restrictions. Now, all things are yours, but this, this, and this, don't do it. Don't touch this. Instead, he wants them to understand the need to view all things in light of the truth that he stated here in chapter 3, that they are Christ's and Christ is God. So, for example, over in chapter 6, they appear to be quoting Paul's own words back to him from a letter, but Paul corrects them with a balancing note in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, apparently they said. Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Over in chapter 10, again, in verse 23, they bring it up. All things are lawful. Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Not all things edify, he says. If you're thinking God's thoughts after him, and you understand God's thoughts about what you see and what you do, you suddenly realize that there are things you can do which aren't edifying you. They're not building you up. They're not leading you to any productive and, and, and godly fruit. And so at the end of chapter 10, he says in verse 31, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. It's just interesting to me that Paul seems to sort of resist the temptation in all these places to sort of give them the, the taboo list. Instead, he wants them to think with godly wisdom. He wants them to think maturely. He wants them to think about things the way God thinks about things. He wants them to think in, about things, first of all, in terms of what is helpful to me spiritually what will edify me, or what will dominate me, what will control me, what will become an idol to me, what will compete with the place of God in my life. Because ultimately, all needs to be done to His glory. Paul was dealing with another, I guess you could say, gray area, another area of freedoms and rights and all that in 1 Corinthians 9. And he said again about all things. He says, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some so that they can share in the benefits of the gospel. You see, this is the way that Paul approached all things. This is the way that he approached all things. All of creation, all the events of life, everything he saw as being given to him to be employed to God's purposes and to His edification. 
He says in 1 Corinthians 13, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, All things need to be done properly and in order. Over and over again, all things, all things. He wants us to think about all things the way God thinks about all things. And then ultimately, over in chapter 15, verse 25, this is what he says. He says, Christ must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted what is uh, excuse me, he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things have been subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. You see, he hasn't left the theme. Same thing he said in chapter 3. All things are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is a worldview. It'll totally transform your life. Repeat it over and over again. The sanctification of all things. All things given for you. All things lawful. But all done to the glory of God. These are the roots of right thinking. These are the deep roots. In a barren and arid land. This is the way God wants you to think about life, about events, about the world, every detail, every task, every job, every material thing, redeemed for His glory.